Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller, and I'm thrilled that you're here with us this week. I've got a fantastic interview for you guys with Dr. Jamie Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is a practicing orthodontist, and he's one of the co-founders of OrthoFi. And in this wide-ranging interview, we covered all sorts of topics. In fact, it turned into one of the longest interviews I've done to date. But we really focused on some of the trends and observations that have been gleaned from the thousands of orthodontic case starts and hundreds of millions of dollars of orthodontic production that's been run through the OrthoFi system. I think you're going to find this fascinating. I think you're going to find it actionable and useful to you in your practice. What I love about this information is it isn't just Jamie's opinion. This is really data-driven. It's fantastic information, and Jamie was generous enough to share it with us. I know we've got the AAO coming up. I'm not going to be there in San Diego. Uh, I'd love to meet some of you guys. I've had a couple of people ask me if I'm going to be there. I will not. But I want you to be my eyes and ears. If you see anyone who you think would be a good guest on the show, send their information my way. Let them know. If you see any trends or products or anything interesting, let me know and we'll get it on the show and we can do an episode. We're going to start today with a short thought of the week and then we'll dive right into the interview. Let's do it. Okay, so today I want to talk with you guys a little bit more about a quarterly personal financial review. And we talked about this back in episode three where I introduced this concept of reviewing some things about our personal finances and our practice finances every quarter. And since we've just had the end of the first quarter, I wanted to revisit that to tell you a little bit more about how we do that. Just to review, there are a couple different parts that I do with this quarterly review every time we sit down and do it. And the first is to review income and spending. So look at the first three months of 2017. What was your total income and what was your total spending? See how those compare. Obviously, we're trying to create that gap between our income and our spending. And if you've done that, congratulations. Hopefully, you've been able to save or pay down some debt. Uh, If not, maybe it's time to reevaluate that. The second thing was to calculate the amount of passive income you can expect from your investments outside of orthodontics. And I'm not going to get into this here, but this is a way of tracking how close you're getting to financial independence. As that income gets closer and closer to your monthly expenses, you're getting closer and closer to financial independence. I also talked briefly about reviewing financial goals, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And then lastly, I mentioned that we like to review every quarter a couple of different topics. And so at the end of the first quarter, I always like to review these three things. And the first is reviewing my taxes from the previous year. If you're on extension, maybe you do this in the third quarter, but I like to look at what was my effective tax rate. Did I make sure I got all of my deductions? Did my taxes get filed properly? Is there anything that needs to be amended? What can I do for next year? What can I do in this year uh, so that when it comes to this time next year, I'm in a better situation tax-wise? All these conversations I think are great to have now so that you can plan out your tax year instead of in December when sometimes it's a little bit too late. The second thing I like to do is review my charitable contributions. What are the charities I'm supporting? How much, At what level? Am I happy with that? What's our plan for the upcoming year? And the third thing I like to do is review what are the interactions that are going to be going on in the upcoming year between my personal finances and my practice finances? Do I expect the practice to grow or shrink? Do I want to take more money out of the practice this year because there are personal expenses that I need, a debt reduction or uh, a vacation or an automobile or a home purchase? Or conversely, do I want to leave more money in the practice this year because I want to invest in new x-ray units or a new marketing strategy that I want to implement? So making a plan for what the practice is going to do and how that's going to affect my family's personal income is something I like to have at least a rough estimate of this time of year. So hopefully that's useful. If any of these things ring a bell and trigger you into action, then hopefully it was worth your time listening. Shoot me a message if you have any questions. Thanks. Dr. Jamie Reynolds attended the University of Michigan for both his undergraduate and dental studies. While at Michigan, he was a member of the volleyball team, where he earned both team captain and all Big Ten honors. Following dental school, 
Dr. Reynolds attended the University of Detroit Mercy, where he earned a master's degree in orthodontics. Dr. Reynolds is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics. He has an intense desire to excel and to stay on the cutting edge of the orthodontic specialty. He lectures on the Damon system, advanced orthodontic technologies, soft tissue lasers, and aligners. He was the first orthodontist to include an insignia case in his ABO recertification examination. Dr. Reynolds is a co-founder of OrthoFi, a software and service solution for new patient onboarding, exam conversion, and financial processing and collections. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodox Podcast, Dr. Reynolds. Hey, thanks a lot. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Tell our listeners a bit about your family and your practice in Detroit. Sure. I practice, uh, we have two offices. Uh, one is in Novi and one is in Rochester Hills, Michigan, in the western and, and sort of uh, northeastern suburbs of Detroit. I started practicing in 2002. Uh, right, I graduated residency on Friday and started working on Monday, <laughs> uh, which would be nice to go back and take a vacation if I could do it over again. But um, we live um, kind of in between the two offices uh, in the suburb of Metro Detroit. Uh, my wife and I've got three kids and a little wiener dog. My kids are 10, 6, and 3. Uh, the th- three-year-old uh, we nicknamed Bam Bam, so that, I think <laughs> tell you enough. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that last one sounds like a handful. We're we're on the verge of getting a family dog. My kids are about to be uh, 8 and 11 and I think we have finally decided to pull the trigger. So the puppy has been born and it's I guess weaning or I don't know what they're doing to the puppy here, but we we have to go pick it up here in a few weeks and I'm kind of terrified. What kind of dog is it? It's a golden doodle, but uh, you know I just don't know a lot about owning a dog, and uh, the kids are over the moon about it, though. So, yeah. So whatever your place is on the family totem pole, you know, prepare to move yourself down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it depends on. I I I sit somewhere in between the bottom uh, and the dog, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Once in a while, if the dog yeah. gets in the garbage, you know, maybe I move up for a minute, but otherwise, uh, <laughs> I think you can pre- yeah. prepare for that. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into lecturing, I guess, to other orthodontists and what topics you really enjoy talking about when you're presenting. Yeah. So, um, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was asked to be part along with my, uh, business partner, Larry Spillane, to be part of, um, a group that Ormco has called the Insiders. Uh, it was originally a, a group of doctors that did lingual braces, hence the name Insiders, um, but it evolved into a product development group. They meet a couple times a year and they, you know, you kind of get to see some of the things that Ormco is working on. And so I met a few people through that, um, one of which was Bob Smith and the other one was Jeff Kozlowski. And they were working on uh, the Insignia product, and uh, Jeff and I got to be friends. And so when he was doing the clinical trials for Insignia, he was flying back and forth from his practice on the East Coast to California, where Ormco's headquarters are. And he called me one day and he said, um, hey, I'm doing this clinical trial, and they're about to do it outside of this little internal Ormco one and, and invite some offices to participate outside of this trial. It's going really well. Uh, I really think you should do it. So are you interested? And then I said, sure. Um, and so we started um, with Insignia. I'd, I had been in orthodontic treatment myself, and I had wanted to you know, get a better result faster and more comfortably, and I thought Insignia was a, a, a way that we could do that. Um, I was also interested in some of the geeky technology stuff about it, and I liked that it was coming out of clinical trials. So we started doing a lot of cases and before you knew it, we had more experience in, in the insignia system than, um, than anybody else. And, uh, the phone started ringing to do some lectures. It seems, you know, that at this point in the game, we're at this interesting time where all of these technologies almost seem to be coming together and this con- there's this confluence of, uh, you know, techniques. Do you find Jamie, for instance, that your skill set? in insignia is becoming more relevant to like your aligner treatment and, and vice versa that what you know what you can take from invisalign applies to insignia or what's your take on that sure you know 
I think that it takes all of us、uh, a little while to adapt our mind to think both in the digital three-dimensional world and the real three-dimensional world. So there's a learning curve,、uh, both with the Aligner software or with Insignia, where you have to get used to looking at things on the computer and relating that to real life, and sort of translating the two back and forth in your mind, so that when you're sitting at the chair clinically, you can evaluate, okay, what am I seeing clinically? And then when you're looking at the digital, whether it be the ClinCheck or the Approver file, translating that what's on the computer and seeing. Where the discrepancies are, are things performing the way that you're expecting them to? Do you need to change anything? You know, they they certainly took a very big jump closer together when Align、uh, introduced the ClinCheck Pro、uh, enhancement. You know, so then、yeah. you could do real time movements with the teeth. But I think it's all pointing that direction:、uh, customizable treatment, digital treatment. You know, I, I think that. You know, many things in healthcare are pointing in that direction, and orthodontics uh, certainly isn't uh, isn't unique in that regard. But but yeah, I think they're pointing towards the same thing. Yeah, you know, I know you've been out there lecturing. I'm sure you've rubbed shoulders with some of the leaders in our profession. What have you observed? Are are there some common characteristics that set apart truly outstanding orthodontists,、uh, people that you admire? What, what common characteristics do they share? Uh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before.、Um, I can tell you that, you know, the the most charismatic of anyone, especially in the clinical realm that I met、um, and had a chance to interact with, is Dwight Damon. Dwight is about the nicest, the nicest person that you've ever met in your entire life. He's one of those people that captivates the room, and and when you meet him, you know, it's just、uh, he's very captivating. You know, I think he has. An ability to kind of see things very easily that might not come so easily to other people. You know, when he talks about putting brackets on, he'll say, "You know, how, Dwight, how do you get the brackets on so well?" And he'll say, "Well, I just visualize in my mind where I want to put it, and then I put it there." You know, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like Obi Wan Kenobi or Yoda or somebody. You know, like it sounds like the force is involved because when I try to do that, it doesn't it doesn't work as well. <laughs> Right, but、um, you know the main feature that I've seen, and and I think it's it's great with all these Facebook groups and all the the collaboration that's going on within our industry now. I think the the biggest minds that I've had a chance and and the honor to be around, they all think with the abundance mindset rather than the scarcity mindset. They're not thinking, you know, what's my competitor doing and how do I hide that from them. They're concentrated on their future. You know, and and developing things, what's in their vision, to try to push the envelope forward, and they're not really looking to sort of, I don't know, as concerned,、uh, reactionary, competitive thinking, rather than pushing the envelope forward thinking. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. There was the great、uh, meme online with、uh, Michael Phelps where it said,、uh, "Winners, what is it? Winners focus on winning, or losers focus on winners." Exactly.、And、I don't know if you saw that going around with、I、Michael、did. Phelps and and the guy in the other lane <clears throat> kind of looking at over at him. I love that one. Yeah. So you just、uh, much more eloquently articulated what I was trying to say. <laughs> But、uh, I, I really think that a lot of the、um, well, you know, you talk about guys like Ben Burris or Jeff Kozlowski, Jonathan Nikazisis. I heard him on your podcast before, Derek Bach. A lot of these really big thinkers, you know, they're they're more abundantly thinking. Than scarcity mindset, and、um, I really admire that. And those are the people that I kind of gravitate towards and try to learn from. Sure. One thing you've done, which I think is somewhat unique among orthodontists, is you became an author. You wrote a book called "World Class Smiles," made in Detroit. What What made you want to write this book, and what purpose has it served for you? So,、uh, so I first started thinking about it.、Uh, um, I got to know、um, a really, really bright doctor named John Graham. Through Ormco and through lecturing, we became friends. And John's one of the smartest guys I've ever met,、um, and he's、uh, incredibly gifted with language. If you've ever heard him speak, you know he just ha- he has a gift for sure. And、uh, and he wrote a book a couple of years ago, 
Uh, he was actually practicing in both Utah and Arizona, and his family was living in Utah. And then when he was spending nights in Arizona, he killed time by writing a book, <laughs> consumer-facing <laughs> book. And so when he published it, I read it. And for whatever reason, I thought, well, maybe I should do one too. And then I started listening to some of Dustin Burleson's stuff. Um, you know, many of you guys have probably seen his stuff come through your Facebook pages and stuff. Yeah. And, um, so uh, he follows a guy named Dan Kennedy, who's a, who's a marketing genius type guy that's got, you know, written a million books. And so I started yeah. reading some of those books and, and uh, he talks very heavily about, you know, you want to become an authority in your, in your area in your specialty and whatever your area of expertise is. And that the way to, um, you know, to do that is to write. And so I started writing little mini resource guides that we would give out at consults and then those kind of combined along with some of my lecture stuff and some other things into a book. In my office, Spillane Reynolds Orthodontics, the founder of it, Larry Spillane, has been around for a long time and he's a super huge name locally in our area. And so I think probably 50 or 75% of the patients that I treat on a daily basis might think that I'm Dr. Spillane. <laughs> so his name definitely precedes our office. And so, um, you know, as he gets closer towards retirement, one of the things that I need to consider is, you know, how do I take the lead in the practice so that, you know, the money that I'm investing in buying the practice from him uh, doesn't evaporate when he retires and his name comes off the building. So I decided maybe writing a book um, might help. So, uh, so I did. And, um, you know, it's not anything uh, that anybody who's listening to this couldn't write and most people could do quite a bit better job but um i tried to make it a little bit locally focused us people from detroit are um very geo egocentric you know we like our hometown <laughs> people sure so anyway it was fun to do and um and i do think that there's something to it uh yeah. the dan kennedy playbook of writing a book and increasing your authority it's in fact this week i did I got asked to do some interviews on three different radio stations and one in San Francisco, one in Denver, one in Cincinnati. I have a few more lined up and I've been probably going to get on my local news and stuff like that. And it all comes from publicity generated from the book. Yeah, that's fantastic. On the one hand, you say that, you know, anyone could write it. And I'm sure from a knowledge of orthodontic standpoint, that's probably true. But I think it's impressive to sit down and put it together. I mean, the the actual act of writing it, of organizing your thoughts, I mean, there's something to that. And I think that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. Well, uh, thanks. It's just, you know, a lot of things like that, like a book might be the perfect example. Um, you know, it's it's not whether you're going to do it or, or whether you want to do it or not. It's just deciding to do it and then doing it, you know. Right. And so I'm sure, you know, maybe you went through the same thing with the podcast. One day you decided, now I'm going to start. And then, uh, you know, I've listened to a bunch of them. They're great. The ones that came out today, I haven't had a chance to listen to because I've been preparing for this. But, <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're doing a killer job with it. And um, it's just as simple as deciding. Right, right. Great. Well, I want to spend some time here talking about OrthoFi and some of the articles you've written that I think really highlight the need to evaluate our systems and kind of the way we use data to make decisions, but maybe briefly tell our listeners about the origin of OrthoFi and kind of what the purpose of it is, what services it provides. So about five years ago, Jeff Kozlowski and I were lecturing at the Damon Forum and uh, we were having a few, it was my first time lecturing at the Damon Forum, so I was very nervous and we had a few um, adult beverages following my lecture to help me calm my nerves. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said, you know, Kaz, you've lectured all over the world on this insignia stuff, um, and I've started to lecture some too. I always get the same question when we break for coffee. It's always the same. Uh, what question do they ask you? And he says, I get the same one too. This high-tech stuff is great. Faster treatment is great. Less visits is great, but how the heck do you get people to pay for it? And um, they asked me this. I said, they asked me the same question every single time. And so we said, we got to figure out the answer to this because I was concerned that on one hand, we're helping develop this technology that's giving people what they want, which um, faster treatment, higher quality treatment, less visits, more efficient. But on the other hand, are we kind of shooting ourselves in the foot 
by getting people done with treatment faster, using a more expensive bracket system, and at the same time, you know, that treatment that used to take us 24 months is now taking us 12, and even though we're not charging more for it, you know, our monthly payments are doubling, are we pricing ourselves out of the market by giving people what they want? So we started to poke around at it, and, um, you know, a friend of mine that I went to college with has an MBA from Dartmouth in finance, so I started asking him some questions, and then I started asking some other orthodontists that I knew from the insiders group that I knew to be great cl clinicians and also really bright business people. And uh, I had another friend that working in the internet startup business, and we got talking, and we sort of batted a bunch of really bad ideas around for a while until we came up with what we thought was a good one. And, um, you know, my friend Dave quit his job working for the internet startup in order to start Orthofy. So that was almost exactly four years ago. Great. And what, what does Orthofy do for an orthodontic practice? Um, it's a combination of software and services. So uh, it provides you with a software package that helps you handle from the moment the patient calls through when they make their last payment. Uh, and there's a bunch of steps in the software along the way that helps you to manage that, including the point of sale. And um, it has some CRM functionality, so it helps you follow up with potential patients and, and helps you through the sales process. And then it has a service component too. So once the patient starts treatment, all of the accounts receivable are handled um, through the service component. So they put their payment information into the system, uh, their insurance information into the system. So then the system will verify eligibility and benefits through your insurance carrier, apply that to the payment terms, and then it will bill, uh, submit and bill the insurance and then collect the insurance receivables. And then it will bill and collect the patient accounts receivable. Um, cool. So the, cool. the doctor gets a deposit every Friday in their bank account. Nice. Well, I'm excited to get to some of the articles that you've written, some of which are cataloged nicely, I think, at Dr. Ben Burris' site, uh, orthopundit.com. And what I really love about these articles, and every time they come out, I print off copies and give them to everyone in our office. What I love, though, is that it's not just a consultant saying, this is what I think, or this is the best practices I've gleaned from 100 offices that I've visited. You know, in these articles, you really say, this is based on data from 75,000 starts or, or whatever the number is. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think uh, I definitely get too much credit for being smart with these, uh, with these articles. And, and I think some people think that I, I knew the answers to these before I started. <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask me how much business training and stuff like that. And the answer is the same amount that any other orthodontist has had, which is none. Really, a lot of this stuff comes from more of a position of weakness and a position of strength. So uh, I, I was struggling with, you know, at the beginning of Orthofy, I was struggling with how do I do a better job measuring conversion in my practice? I, I knew that case acceptance was a, a number that I shouldn't be using because it, it didn't make sense to me. And I still don't believe it's a, it's a smart way to measure treatment co coordinator performance. So I was looking for a better way to do that, and I was wondering how I could make my business operate better because I felt like we were missing a lot of, of layups in the business. And so, you know, as we got, as we started getting more and more offices, once we got a pretty darn big data set, Orthofy hired a, um, a guy from MIT uh, as a data intelligence person with a master's degree from MIT, sort of a real smart business numbers guy. And so, Myself, another guy named Oliver Gellis and the CEO, Dave, we, we started asking questions, you know, uh, and most of it was coming from places that I, I was struggling in my practice or I was wanting to know the answer to. So, okay, what are, what are down payments looking like? What are monthly payments looking like? Uh, one of the things that I heard all the time was that treatment fee and conversion percentage must be inversely related, meaning the more you charge, the worse conversion you had. So we wanted to see is that true or what did that relationship look like? So we started asking a bunch of questions and then we started seeing kind of the breadcrumb trail with the way that the data was pointing. And then, you know, Orthofy started with one person and now there's 105 employees. And so... Really? And all, you have 105 employees at Orthofy? 
Yeah, believe it or not. And so that's a big um, operation. It's not small, and it's grown really quickly. And so, you know, none of them are orthodontists <laughs> that are employed there. And so, I've spent a lot of time watching the and and helping to participate, but really watching the CEO grow a company from that small to that big, and learning from a lot of the the business people that come along with it. So we have quite a few MBAs, Ivy League MBAs that work for the company now, and a, a lot of people with really deep business experience in a bunch of areas. And so those people kind of chime in with some of the business concepts about, you know, creating leverage and how to manage things in aggregate versus transactional management. And so, you know, the goal for the company was trying to take the best of what orthodontists are doing and then layer in really smart business expertise to combine and create a synergy so that we could take a step forward in the way that we manage our businesses. Awesome. Yeah, one thing I love is that, you know, you're you're sharing this information. I mean, I'm not currently an OrthoFi customer, but, you know, I find so much relevance uh, in this data that, that really can apply to all orthodontic practices. But you've kind of teased us here with a couple of these. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up on some of these issues. One of the things you mentioned was measuring treatment coordinator conversion rates and, and how you measure the performance of a TC. What, what do you think now, having looked at the data, is, is a good way to do that? Yeah, so, um, you know, first I just wanted to comment on the reason why we're sharing the data. You know, I've kind of tried to model myself over the people that I really respect in our business and have learned from. And I mentioned it before that guys like Dwight Damon and, and Ben Burris and Bob Smith, Jeff Kozlowski, John Graham, a bunch of others are all very much abundance mindset. You know, so they're very much into pushing the envelope, sharing what they get and trying to create, you know, things that propel the profession forward. So we wanted to model orthofy in that same vein so yeah the data that we have we know is really powerful so instead of keeping it to ourselves and creating a competitive advantage for the company or or whatever hoarding yeah this data, could be like your secret sauce or or whatever your best internal best practices correct and so rather than doing that we wanted to our goal is to help orthodontists keep patients where we where they belong which we believe is in the hands of a highly skilled orthodontist and so um there's more competition now than just other orthodontists and a few GPs. You know, we all know about Small Direct Club and who knows what's coming. So it's more important now than ever that the orthodontist is armed with the information to be able to compete moving forward. So about about conversion percentage, you know, we feel very strongly that there's only one way to, to measure conversion percentage. Um, and so uh, you need to look at when you recommend treatment, does that patient start, yes or no? So typically, the easy way to measure it is case acceptance. Um, the reason I think we all do that is because it's easy, which is the number of starts divided by the number of new patient exams. But really, starts and new patient exams are metrics that should be measured separately, and putting them together does not really create a very good actionable metric. The only reason you want to um, look at a number is so that you can make a decision and create some action from it. And looking at case acceptance is very deceiving. It has almost zero short-term value. Uh, so, for example, if you ran a promotion in your office and you wanted to see how it impacted things, case acceptance doesn't really tell you that. Uh, if you change your fees, stuff like that. So we wanted to look at a more precise metric. So the metric should be number of starts divided by number of recommends. So if you recommend treatment, do they start yes or no? And then that per percentage can be measured on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, can be updated in real time and be looked back on in a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And so if you're trying to evaluate the performance of your TCs and your sales process, that's the metric you should be looking at. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and you do it based on, so it's, it's number of starts divided by number of recommends. Correct. I've also heard people actually who break this down like total dollars of treatment accepted versus presented, which sounds kind of similar to what you're proposing. But actually, this is what we propose, and this is what the patient agreed to, to move forward with. Correct. Yeah, and we can break those numbers down, dollars versus uh, not, you know, so if you presented a more expensive treatment plan or not, you know, we have numbers of when 
Invisalign has been presented head to head against braces and what the difference in price is, what the conversion percentage stuff. And those are all fun little things that, you know, to be continued. We'll be sharing that sure. data as we go through it later. But, um, sure. Another thing you mentioned was this concept of, you know, everyone wanting to start more patients and, and increase competition. And some people say, Oh, I should, I should lower my fee. I should try to compete on price. What does the data say about that strategy? Yeah, so the the data shows that once you get over $5,400, anywhere between $5,400 and $7,500 or so, there really is no correlation between price and conversion. So there's many more factors that go into it besides price. And what we see in Orthofy is that, in fact, the the lowest dollar average per case practices also are the lowest converting in our data set. So it almost appears that lowering being lower in price could could hurt your conversion i think that the you know again the breadcrumb trail is is there not just in our own business but other businesses so there are plenty of businesses that compete on things other than price that are expensive that still do very very well the customer has to perceive that value there so creating that value being more customer service focused or um, providing a service, maybe you're non-extraction or maybe you do, um, you know, more complicated treatments or whatever might make your name locally. Providing that service and that value is more important than the price. Um, and I think there's very strong evidence um, that people will pay more for things that they perceive to be more valuable. And so that's yeah. what we should all be focused on. So competing just on price, you know, at, at the Meeting I was at recently, Ben Burris said something I thought was very intelligent. It's that you shouldn't, if you're going to change your price, you can, you should also modulate down your service, right? Or if you're going to raise yeah. your price, you know, inversely, you also have to modulate up your service. But you can't have one without the other, and you shouldn't. Yeah. Strictly lowering your price doesn't seem to have any uh, beneficial impact on conversion rates is is pretty much the take home I'm getting. Correct. There. And I think, you know, we've all had those patients where we thought they were a pain in the butt and we're like, I don't want to treat them, charge them 1500 bucks extra. Right. Yep. And what typically happens with those? They start, they start, right. <laughs> they pay you the 1500 bucks extra and then you kick yourself thinking you should have charged them 3000, you know? Yeah. Um, another thing I want to hit on here, which I found interesting as I was reading, uh, rereading, I guess, these articles, is somewhat uncommon in the orthodontic world, is that you're charging interest on some of the plans that you're offering patients. Can you explain, I guess, how you decided to kill off one of the sacred cows of orthodontic <laughs> financing? Um, you know, uh, it was really pretty simple. I remember being in, in residency for many years and being poor in dental school. Mm -hmm. And there were things that I wanted that I couldn't afford to pay cash for. And, you know, I chose the I'll pay you $2 on Tuesday for a hamburger today approach, you know. And so it, I, I thought that if I had crooked teeth and I was younger or in residency or in, for something else or in dental school, I would gladly pay some interest to allow me to not have to wait several years to be able to afford it. So, and if you look outside orthodontics, that's what, that's what companies do. You know, they don't, you know, your car company doesn't, you know, run your credit and then make you put $25,000 down if you have bad credit on a $50,000 car, right? They just right. change your term some and maybe you have to put more down, but they also don't extend it as long or they charge interest to hedge the default risk. That's, that's what it's all about. So we, um, we decided we would try it. And, um, you know, the most that we charge is 6.9%. And then we have an algorithm that bases, you know, based on your credit worthiness and some other factors where up to that 6.9% that, you know, each payment plan picks up. And it changes if you pay the term shorter versus longer. So, um, you know, what we found is almost 10% of all patients pick interest-bearing plans, which was actually more than we thought, uh, more than I thought. The finance guys involved in it thought it would be actually more than that. They were surprised that it was a little lower. Yeah, I was surprised that it was that much. Yeah, so I think the orthodontists are shocked that anyone would pay. And the reality is, is that a lot of people pay interest for everything in their life. You know, we just yeah. don't realize it because we never offered it before. 
Well, and um, I guess orthodontists are not exactly a good like cross section of the average population, right? I mean, I think the finances, the way orthodontists think about finances, is probably skewed pretty heavily. Sure, uh, I think it, it's we all um, probably don't remember what what it was like for you know the difference of twenty five or fifty dollars a month to be meaningful for our budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is, is there are a lot of people um, and. I think orthodontist thinking um, skews us quite a bit in that regard too. You know, so one of the things that was really interesting is that every time I talk about interest, orthodontists immediately assume that it's uh, people with bad credit, um, risky people who would pick interest. But there's well over a third, almost half of the patients on interest-paying plans have good to very good credit. So you know, the assumption that can't afford more than $150 a month in payment plan and has bad credit are the same is is false. And we have overwhelming evidence to that. That's really, that's really fascinating. I think you, you, the way that you guys structure it with allowing people to pick their own financial arrangements, I think opens up a lot of these possibilities, you know, that you can kind of observe the behavior of these orthodontic consumers by giving them more freedom uh, in their payment options. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, 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 a lot of these conversations, you know, you have different type of people. So some people will tell you exactly what they can afford. So if you say, Hey, what can you afford to put down? They'll tell you other people won't, you know, there's a good chunk of people that are introverted. And so allowing them to kind of grind on the numbers by themselves in their own head without having to say, well, I can only afford to put $150 down, which might be embarrassing to them. They can work through the options on themselves. And I, I think it helps make a connection um, to make the office seem more flexible. I think it also can, um, you know, ultimately help help conversion in, in that way by making that connection that sometimes is difficult with certain people who might not be willing to talk about that stuff. Yeah. I think there's probably still orthodontists out there that have a problem with extended financing or uh, lower down payments. They feel a need to cover their initial costs or, or whatever the case may be. How should orthodontists in 2017 be thinking about, quote unquote, extending credit to their patients? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, what we found is that there's there's three main things that you need to think about to have your um you know, sort of contemporary financial practices in your in your office. The first thing is to be flexible. We talked about that, right? But a lot of people default to, well, okay, I'm going to be flexible. So then I'm just going to start letting people put zero down and, you know, $99 a month or whatever. And so that's not really the, the smart way to be flexible. You can do that, but... Um, if you do, you know, you're, you're going to create cash flow problems for your office, so you're going to get very poor very quickly, especially if you're using high-tech things like Insignia or SureSmile or Invisalign that they want their money up front. You'll help your practice grow, but you'll, get, you, you'll feel like the poorest guy in town. <laughs> um, so what you want to do is you want to be intelligent about it. So you want, you want to, it should be a negotiation. So, you know, a certain percent of your patients that, you know, uh, that most of us have that can afford to pay in full, they should be incentivized to put more money down. You should also make some incentives to raise the down payment amount for people that can't pay in full. So maybe you give them a discount if they pay 50% or 75%. Uh, and so encouraging people that have the money to have a reason to put more down. Then you want to offer a big chunk of people 0% terms, you know, because that's what we're all used to. And then you want to offer people extended terms as well, but I think you want to charge some interest, which is you don't want to charge too much, so you don't want to charge them 20%. We're not a credit card company. We don't make money on you know, credit. We make money on straightening teeth. So the way we should use interest is, is two ways. Number one, a disincentive for people to just pick the lowest monthly possible and, and bleed out the cash flow. So it's a cash flow management tool. And the other thing is it's a it's a hedge against the risk of extending treatment beyond uh, extending payments beyond treatment time. So you do pick up a little bit of extra risk, but then that interest compensates you for that risk, right? Right. So, so if some of those patients default, you're offset partially by the interest that you've received kind of throughout the process. Correct. Yeah. 
So that's the purpose of it. So the whole thing should be a negotiation so that your cash flow uh, should stay really nice and healthy uh, while at the same time allowing flexibility to those who need it. But it shouldn't be rote flexibility to everyone. Um, you know, the second, the second thing that you want to do is take that flexibility and allow, allow yourself to intelligently create leverage in your business, meaning, you know, um, you want to allow that person who can only put $250 down to get Invisalign. And then you'll use the money from the pay in full to pay your lab bill on the person who wants to start Invisalign but can't afford to put $2,000 down. So, right. you know, there are plenty of people out there who are willing to allow people to start without covering the Invisalign lab bill, number one. So if you're not doing that in your office and your your patient really wants Invisalign, they're just going to go someplace else, period, right? And there's there's so much data now that we have in collections that the, the risk is so very low that... Um, you know, you might get burned once in a while, and you probably will if you treat enough patients. So you'll have that one Invisalign patient four years ago who, you know, made one payment and then screwed you out of the lab bill. And if you, if that's what you remember, it, it will inappropriately influence your decision making. So, and keep you from making money off a lot of the other patients who would have done business with you if you'd just been flexible. Yeah, uh, and in orthodontics, especially where we have such a high marginal profitability. I mean, the, the profitability on that last case of the year is so high that I think it really makes the case even more compelling uh, to, to work with patients and to try to make these things happen. Yeah, I mean, it makes it a no-brainer, right? So the variable contramugin margin, what you're talking about, is, uh, you know, even with Invisalign cases, is probably near 70%. So, um, you know, because you've already paid your rent, you've already paid all of the expenses that you run through the office staff, everything. So you're just laying a few patients on top. And really what you're paying for them is your Invisalign lab bill, you know, whatever the resin is that make your attachments, rubber bands, you know, the bag, the swag bag that you give them. It's not very much. So uh, the profitability is really high. And then if you flip it, you know, the aggregate default rate that we're seeing is less than a percent, uh, 0.7%. So you've got, you know, 70% margin and 0.7% default risk. It makes the math, even for us non-math orthodontists, pretty easy, right? Yeah. Um, but the key is you've got to have great systems in place. You can't just be super flexible and create this leverage and then use your same old collection processes. You've got to be very much on the ball. Uh, so that's the other thing. So just, you know, your systems have to be super tight in order to make this all work. Awesome. Awesome. Jamie, there's, there's so much good stuff here. Do you mind if we keep going and hit a few more topics? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, sweet. Um, I've seen, I've seen an article you wrote. OrthoFi has, has collected some data on things like answering the phone, scheduling exams. Um, what have you guys learned about how to get a new patient in the chair? Sure. So, you know, there's a few things that we looked at. We looked at, you know, when you answer the phone, how you do it and then uh, and then how quickly the patients come in. So one of the things that we had a really hard time with for a while is getting people to answer the phones at lunchtime. And so um, we took uh, we bought Jay Geyer's you know at home phone study system. I have no relationship with Jay Geyer, but we we bought that thing and it, and it worked really well for us actually. We still have all of our new front desk people listen to his training. It's very good. I think it's definitely worth the money. And so uh, one of the things that he hammers on is answering the phones at lunch. So when we started answering the phones at lunch, I would ask my people, and we would have one, sometimes two, sometimes more exams call and scheduled during lunch. And so once we got this big pile of data, uh, we started wondering, you know, is this a trend? You know, is this, you know, nationwide or is just in offices? And so what we found is that 26.5% of all new patient exams are created between noon and 2 p.m. So, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's staggering. It's staggering, right? And so, um, you know, also when you add in Fridays, a lot of people don't work Fridays. And so, you know, in our office, if you blend that lunchtime and Fridays, it's about 34% of our new exams come from lunch or Fridays. And so... You know, that, that's uh, the business guys call this blocking, blocking and tackling, right? Like the, the basics of the basic. Yeah. 
So, you know, for those doctors that aren't answering their phones at lunchtime or on Fridays, you know, even if you're not in the office, you should have someone. You think, well, a lot of times we step over dollars to pick up pennies. So you think, well, I've got the extra payroll and my accountant's bugging me to keep my payroll margin down. Well, the easiest way to keep your payroll number down is to grow, right? Yep. So as you grow, your payroll looks a lot smaller when you stack that variable contribution margin stuff on top of it. So it is costing you a fortune to not have people answer at lunch. And uh, Yeah, on and I would say to anyone listening, if you're too afraid to tell your front desk people that they need to work through lunch, you've got a real problem on your hands. I mean, this is something, like you say, this is business 101. The phone has to be answered. I mean, it has to be answered at lunch. It has to be answered on Fridays. And you've got to find a way to make that happen or find someone else who, who will do it. I mean, this to me is, this seems like a total non-negotiable. Yeah, it should be, you know, but a lot of us weren't doing it. I mean, we really weren't doing it until five or six years ago. And since we started, our practice has really grown. Um, and, and, you know, if you think about it, Almost all of our traffic, you know, some of us maybe get walk-ins uh, in more urban areas and more medical centers, you know, but I would say 95% plus of exams that are generated come through in through the phone. Yep. You know, and so that's that's the route. And until online stuff gets more robust, I mean, if your phones are not in order, it's really, it's really killing you. So uh, I would encourage everyone to focus on that if they're not doing it. The second thing we looked at is I always wondered... You know, before we got in a, a, a hired a, a, our third doctor, Dr. Adri Dopp, uh, she's a fantastic young doctor we have working with us now. We were on a pretty long wait list to get exams, especially for after school time. So we started to wonder, is there an inflection point where the, you know, I think it's good for our egos to say, oh, yeah, I've got a three week wait list for new patient exams in my office. But is there a point where that's really costing us money? And so we looked at that. We found about 21 days is the is the number for kids where it starts to dip, and adults dips, you know, right off the bat. So, um, you know, about 10, 11 percent of all your adults will no show even if they schedule that day because adults are, you know, they're pretty flaky. They they see an ad on Facebook, they call and they want to schedule and they want to come in right the second. So adults really decay. So the further they go from the day they call to the day they come in there's a, a greater chance of no-show. Kids, it, it's pretty um, flat until about day 21, then it starts to decline. So you want to you know, get your adults in as quickly as possible and get your kids in at least within 21 days or sooner if possible. Yeah, that's, that's great data. I, this, I always think this is hysterical that I always give my staff grief about like the thermostat. They have like a one range, one degree range that they're comfortable in. You know, if it's like <laughs> below 70 or like above 72, you know, I'm, I'm, they're, they're complaining terribly. But for me, my thermostat is on new patient exams. If we have openings or holes or not filled, you know, in the next week, I'm going crazy. But if we start to get out like two or three weeks, I'm going crazy. And my staff gives me a hard time because <laughs> it's like, you're not happy either way. But there there really is this kind of sweet spot that we like. And we're a little bit neurotic about it, I think. But for a good reason, as you point out. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get your thermostat because I, I never have all of my staff happy about the temperature. <laughs> There's yeah. always several that are too hot and too cold simultaneously. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things we looked at um, is uh, what we call kept exam decay. So phone stuff is really hard to measure, and um, I've toyed around with it. Some people I know, they uh, they have every single one of their calls listened to by someone in Indonesia or wherever. We haven't moved in that direction yet. I probably should. But we were trying to poke around and see if we could find a good metric for phone skills in the office. So um, the one we've kind of settled in on is what we call kept exam decay. So if they schedule, we all track those new patient calls, or we should be tracking them. So how many people schedule to come in? Yep. We also should track how many people actually do come in, and then the spread between that number. I think that's a good indicator of your phone skills. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that if your people are friendly and they do a good job with confirmation calls and, and following up and stuff like that, then more people will show up. And if they're unfriendly and they don't do a good job of that, then less people will show up. So you want to keep that number above 90%. So if, you know, um, if they call and less than 90% of them show up, you probably should be looking at your phone processes, both the friendliness of them and the confirmation calls. Right. 
Right. So after we present our treatment recommendations to a patient, we've got them in the chair, they've kept their exam, we've said this is what you need, and besides offering, you know, acceptable financial terms to the patients, what do we do to help them start treatment, or how should our TCs be following up? I know you guys have looked a little bit on on kind of the, the systems to get them in after the treatment has been recommended. Yeah, so, you know, I, I believe... Um that the, the vast majority of offices that are very highly converting, the actually key component to that happens before the treatment recommend. So the key, I, I believe the key component, and, and since we started managing this things this way in our office, our conversion has jumped a ton, is conditioning the patient before they come in the office. So, you know, doing that confirmation call, the, sending them something in the mail, hitting them over and over again with, you know, be prepared to start, talk with whoever you need to about what you're comfortable putting down and really gracefully letting them know that, hey, we're here for you. And uh, if it's convenient for you, we'll make the financial numbers work and we can save you a trip and get you started that day. So we found that the, the lion's share of the work goes in before um, the patient comes in. Because we know that once they walk out the door, your chances of converting them drop by 50%. And so, and if you are going to convert them, um, you need to do it quickly. So a, a lot of offices, they'll say, you know, well, uh, Mrs. Jones, Johnny needs braces. And she says, okay, well, I need to talk to my husband. And then the response from the office is, okay, well, why don't you go to talk to your husband and uh, give me a call if you have any questions, right? And that's kind of the extent of the follow-up. Uh, and then, you know, the next layer of offices, they might call them back, but they don't want to seem pushy. So they'll call them back, you know, once a month or two weeks later, or they'll call and check in. Uh, the, the best offices try to get a, something on the books before the person walks out. So, and instead of seeming pestering, you know, hey, Mrs. Jones, is it okay if I call you back? You can say, as if you're the TC, say, you know, Mrs. Jones, I know you're busy. You know, uh, if you, once you speak with dad, I'm sure you'll have some questions. I'd be glad to make myself available to you. Would you prefer that I follow up with you on Monday or Tuesday? And so that's not really pushy, and it puts it seems convenient to the mom. It seems like good customer service. And it, you try to get something on the books and follow up with them within a few days. Adults, you should be following up with the same day or the next day with a text or an email. And uh, with kids, it shouldn't be more than 48 hours. Yeah, that that decay of whatever it is, uh, treatment starts or acceptance uh, conversion, it really is precipitous. As you know, like you say, when they walk out the door, you've already dropped tremendously. But then you know, it it seems to go away pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, um, we look at something we call forty-five day TRC, which is the chances that you know your conversion percent running total over the last forty-five days, and we know that. You know, between 75 and 80% of your chances of converting them happens within the first 45 days. So, you know, each patient, you know, uh, like we used to do our follow-ups with our pending list, you know, twice a month. Uh, But then if the TC was on vacation, then maybe got skipped. So it happened once a month, you know. And so each patient should really be followed up on an individual basis. So instead of doing X number of them in a big batch, every other Wednesday or the first Wednesday of every month, you should be really doing a few of them every single day, each specifically for that patient and try to touch them several times over the first two weeks. Um, Cause if the, once the patient gets into pending, that's really when they're going to convert, you know, and most people get a lot of multiple opinions as well. So sure. you want to make sure that you're touching base with them and staying in contact and, and having, you know, there's a fine line between being too pushy and, and giving great, you know, customer service and follow-up. So you want to you wanna avoid that, but um, really being in contact with them as much as possible, both from an email standpoint, a phone standpoint, and a text message standpoint is, I think, really important uh, from awesome. a pen, pending follow-up. Awesome. Last question for you, Jamie. Um, you've got a lot of balls in the air, clearly. Um, I, I guess really every orthodontist does. And I think everyone faces that e-myth dilemma. You know, how do I balance working on the systems? And we've talked a lot tonight about systems of, the, of your practice with actually working as the orthodontist face-to-face with patients, giving them the attention they need. 
how do you strike that balance in your work day, working on your practice versus being available, uh, you know, for your patients? Um, you know, I, 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 I can't say that I have the, the answer that, um, you know, the magic wand, it's hard. Um, I'd be lying if I told you that at some point in time, um, you know, there isn't some anxiety w involved with trying to do a million things at the same time, just like everybody else probably has. Um, one thing that's really helped me is about two years ago, um, I stopped telling most of my staff what to do and I picked who I felt to be the six or seven key leaders. So we've, we've got about 24 or 25 people on our staff. So if you have a smaller staff, maybe it's less, um, maybe even the five or six key people in your office that you think the office are, they're kind of the leaders. And instead of telling everybody what to do, I formed a team and we met every Wednesday and I started asking them what we should be doing. You know, what are we missing? How can we do this better? And, you know, the first three or four times we did it was just a big complaining fest. So we made a rule that you're not allowed to complain without either postulating an answer or asking for help. You know, so if you didn't know the answer, ask for it or even better, propose a solution. And so um, it totally changed the way that my practice runs. And so the practice became much less about me and much more about we. I uh, really engaged a bunch of people, and I still am astounded at, at the aptitude that was hiding in plain sight underneath my nose that I was mismanaging for so many years. Huh. And so um, really engaging my team and, and asking them what we should be doing in the office and listening to them uh, has really freed me up immensely. Uh, a lot of the management tasks are not done by me anymore. A lot, most of the hiring is not done. Uh, a lot of our training materials and stuff like that are not done by me. So when we're in the office, I focus on treating patients and giving great customer service. The other thing that I've tried to do is carve out some time to do some of the other things. I used to try to fit everything in the middle of the patient day emails and, you know, writing blog posts and writing the book and following up this and following up that. So I would suggest, you know, making patient days about treating the patient and giving them a great experience. So being out in the clinic, giving high fives and talking to moms and having fun with the patients, talking with your team, move your office if you're in the back out into the clinic or near it so that you're right in the middle of everything. And then schedule some time on other days, not clinic days, to do your other stuff. I, yeah. I, there was a long time where I felt really a dual gravity. You know, I was pulled to my emails and computer and stuff, but then I was pulled to the clinic and I would get annoyed sometimes that I had to leave, stop what I was doing because I had so much to do and then go see those darn patients, you know. Uh, really focusing my clinical days on clinical has really allowed me to, to be much better in the clinic and then carving some other time out. Yeah, that's awesome. I I feel that sometimes where I'm I've got my to-do list, but, you know, I feel guilty at the same time because there's patients and, and really at the end of the day, you know, that's an opportunity missed if I'm, you know, in there, uh, you know, like you say, answering emails or, or, or doing something. It's, it's, it's a tricky balance, but I appreciate uh, you giving us some, some thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, Jamie, this was incredible. Uh, thanks so much uh, for sharing this information with our listeners, for being so open uh, with uh, this data that you've collected. Uh, I think I think it's fantastic. I've gotten a ton out of this. I've got notes jotted down here. Uh, and I would encourage everyone to, to go online and, and read these articles. Is there anything else you want to hit on before we sign off here? No, it's been great. I, I just want to thank you for putting this podcast together. I've learned a lot from listening to the really uh, heavy hitters that you've had on uh, before now. And uh, I think it's great. Uh, I really do think that, you know, orthodontists need more of this. They need more collaborative things. They need more things that are for the greater good of the profession. We need to come together as a, as a specialty now more so than ever before. And, uh, and I think what you're doing with this podcast is really, really great. Uh, so thank you for doing it. I look forward to catching up on the two episodes that I've missed and, uh, and listening to all the great people that you have. You know, one thing that we, we both know is that our profession is, is filled with incredibly intelligent and incredibly interesting people. Absolutely. So I look forward from learning, uh, to learning from all the guests that you bring on the show. So thanks for doing it. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Have a great night. It's my pleasure. Talk to you later. 
hey guys, I want to thank Jamie for being on the podcast and delivering that amazing interview. I learned so much and I just got notes written down all over the place here. That was just absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, many of our guests are in the Elevate Orthodontics podcast Facebook group. You can go on and it's for orthodontists and orthodontic residents. You can request uh, admittance to that group and there's some conversation that goes on there and you can ask some follow-up questions if you're interested. I'd appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Maybe I'll post a little video on how to do that in the group. Shoot me an email with any thoughts or questions you have. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, have a fantastic week and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.